You got a problem, you don't know what to do. Your dreams are strange, and you're seeing things too. The world is full of mystery, life's more than you can see. You can ask pomegranate, you can ask pomegranate, she's a Hello, my darling, my beloved mystery seekers, witches, shamans, psychics. Welcome to Ask Pomegranate Podcast. And welcome to 2016, if you're still in 2016. But see, you might be listening to this in 2000. Who knows how long this thing is going to be up for? 20? And this is all really old history now. Four years, which is so long ago. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. I wanted to talk to you about the idea that when we're seeking mystery, the first thing we have to notice is where we are and where we are is we notice the dimensions we're in. And so when we're doing magic, what we do, the first thing we do is notice, Oh me, here I am ground. What's below me. What then we go, Oh, what's above me. And then I notice what's around me. So I notice, you know, air, fire, water, earth. And I want I want to talk about another dimension that we deal with a lot, which is this dimension time. And you could even call time in those of you who practice calling casting and calling circles, you could even introduce the idea of calling in time, either as a dimension, and therefore you can call in the guardian of time. And um, you can or you can work with it as a deity even, because time is a very important dimension that is extremely mysterious and hard to understand. Because let's face it, the only reason we acknowledge time is because the earth is bothering to spin, you know, the earth spins. And so then it goes, hi, sun, bye, sun, hi, sun, bye, sun, hi, sun, bye, sun. Uh, I'll, you know, you say hello to the sun every day, and then we say goodbye to it. And the earth spins. And then we go, ah, that means something. That's a measure of something. Oh, you know what? That's a measure of time. And that's how we understand time. You know, when they put people in um, a cave, occasionally scientists do interesting things. And one thing they've done is they've put people into caves underground with no light for like two weeks or a month. And people lose track of time entirely. They can no longer pace what, how long they've been down there for, there's no time pieces, what, how much time's gone by, they try to keep up, they try to imagine it's morning or it's night. And but they can't. And what happens is they tend to live on a 25 hour clock. Now, isn't that strange? The human body is on a 25 hour clock. I think this is probably why we all have all have so much time going to bed and staying in bed. So when they, what happens is they, they stay on a 25 hour clock and after a while, um, they're totally off to what we're doing. And, uh, they're, you know, they think it's morning and it's midnight. And what, what is it? What, just as an aside, what, doesn't that say something about the humans that our bodies do not sync with the 25, 24 hour cycle of we're actually on a 25 hour cycle, but the earth itself is on a 24 hour cycle. That's for sure. You know, those things happen. So I don't know. That's weird. Pause it what you will about that. But time is an interesting thing because it's only metered out by the fact that the earth is willing to spin. Um, and isn't that, and that the moon is willing to spin and that the universe is a spiral dance. So, so when we work with time, uh, there's two concepts of time, which our astrology's friends would call Kronos time and Chiron time. I think I got it right. JP from Northwest Astrology School. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so those two dimensions of time, which one, now can I tell you which one's which? No, I cannot. One is about that clock time, that tick tock, that now time is going by. And the other one is about um, being lost in time or being on a, you know, being in that place where it seems like no time has gone by and that expansive place you're in when you're captivated by something and you're like, oh, what, how much time has gone by? And so this is all the magic of time and, and our relationship to time and its dimension, uh, gives us a beautiful, fantastic boundary because your time is limited. You got born you're going to die. There's bookends. 
And from what we hear from the other side, from the dead, is that time is not a dimension on the other side, that time is irrelevant, that time is you're both here and there, you're both now and then. And so here what we get and what we love, why we come here is so we can be in the dimension of time. Yay. Wow. It's funny how much we complain about it once we're here, but that's why we're here is to actually really thoroughly experience time. And one of the things about that is we become very fixated on the moment of time that we're in, which is fine. That's great. Like, you know, yay, fine. We're here and we're in time. And, you know, Ram Dass says, be here now. And who can, you know, no one can complain about that guy. He's like awesome. So, which is, that's a, that's a process of being mindful about the moment and not freaking out about the future or being overwrought about the past. At the same time though, we become so fixated on time or our, or our understanding of the past and our ability to perceive the future is so skewed that we become obsessed with the moment and we frame it in certain ways and that framing can make us crazy. So like right now, as I'm speaking, there's like a crazy ass political race going on in the United States, which is where I live. Oh, Lordy, I hope you people who are listening in 2020 are like, yeah, that's right. That did happen. Wasn't that funny how close Donald Trump came to being the fascist dictator of the United States? Ha 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 ha, that that didn't happen. Oh, yes, I say a prayer to time. (laughs) That's what, that's the way it goes down. But we get very fixated and we become very that fixation allows us to become very fear-based and that fear-based allows us to become very um, uh, forgetting of the textures and the subtleties and the magics of time. And we forget the past Mm -hmm. and we forget how things used to be very easily. Like, Hey, you guys remember like how totally illegal it was to be gay, man. You know, remember that like it was illegal and now it's no longer mostly for the most part in the United States illegal and in fact you can get married and that didn't used to be that way like five minutes ago but we forget and we it's have a hard time celebrating the victories so right now there can be a lot of fixation on uh the fear of what could happen and and as i've just expressed who couldn't have that fear my this is a long way for me to get around to the idea that Inside of time, there's a relationship to the past and the future that is not that is non-linear. That in fact, time actually flows on that spiral, and that spiral, as things come, you know, they call they call them full circle moments, but actually they're full spiral moments. It's like when you spiral back around to that time in your life when, and then you pass through that and move on, and that's when you have a relationship to that thing. So what I want to encourage you all to do now is remember the power of manifestation, which is what is true in your body, what is true in your heart, what is the true song that your heart's desire sings can be sung on those lines on those spiraling lines of time they can be sung across that brief bridge back from the past um, to those of you who are suffering it can be sung into the future to those of you who are manifesting and it's we're going to go to a world because this is also, there's a lot of timelines going simultaneously. Here's an idea. What if there was a lot of sim- timelines going simultaneously and you just did, got to decide which timeline you were on, right? So like for me, I'm on a timeline for sure that is the the dying beast of the oppressive oligarchies are dying and the humans are evolving into a, a species that is able to have and hold compassion for all creatures of the earth and that we are able to uh, find a way to harmony and beauty and uh, in, in other words to live an elegant life that protects and ho- helps all beings of the earth thrive and that we all live in equality this is the timeline I'm on and I sometimes have to go wait I'm on the t- wrong timeline time to make the jump I'm going to make the jump leap onto the timeline that leads to that outcome so I'm going to suggest to you that you either sing to your future through your heart's desire which is always clear that you sing to the future in a way that um, is either jumping into that timeline where we live in a utopia because why not let's do it it's not that hard humans we can do it 
We're humans. We're smart and we're innovative. Now we just have to become elegant. An elegant world is non-toxic. An elegant world does not have any homophobia or racism or any of that crap. An elegant world is harmonious and we get to all jump onto that timeline. So one, two, three, leap. Your question's next. Welcome to our Facebook episode. Did you know you can leave your questions on the Ask Pomegranate podcast Facebook page? Well, you can. And this person did. They're wondering if you can be your own ancestor. They've been wondering for a while if our ancestors reincarnate. Is there a part of their spirit that's still in the spirit realm that we can connect to? Or even a family member who's died within a generation or two that would reincarnate? Do we lose the guide connection to them if they come back to the physical realm? And in that same line, of thinking, could I have been a past member of my own bloodline many generations ago and therefore my own ancestor? Kind of trippy to think about. What do you think about that, Pom? Thanks, Kayleen Beaujolais. I'm so lucky to have Kayleen Beaujolais work on my podcast. She's a professional newswoman in the radio world, and she also works on my podcast as well as other things. And just thanks, Kayleen. It's awesome to have you. Without you, I am nothing. Yeah, um, that's a great question about, and it is a question about time. Um, so like I said earlier, the, uh, the gift of being here is we get to be in, in, in limited dimension, but we also get to be in time, and time is a beautiful, the limitations of time is a beautiful thing. And it's a little bit like water to a fish. Um, in that we are so in it, it's hard to, uh, for us to imagine life without it. I, I find it hard to figure out how it all works. My brain, my human brain can't do it. My human brain goes, what? What? <laughs> How's that? What? But yeah, you can. You can be your own ancestor. Um, I started having this happen to me because uh, I don't know why, but lots of people in my family like to die young. And so I have lots of experience with the dead, <laughs> which is lovely and, you know, sad and difficult, but also lovely. They tell me what it's like there and how it works. And, and then one of them decided to come back in a body and get born. And I'm like, huh, I guess I can't talk to them anymore, but nope, I was wrong. They're in a body and they, I don't think I've told them this, you are this person reborn, uh, but they're in a body and they are also um, on the other side simultaneously because for them, there's no difference. <laughs> they're present there. And I don't know, like my brain, it starts going, what? And like, which personality do they have and what? But what I understand is that when they approach the people they knew on the earth from a certain life, that that is the personality that they take. So you're multidimensional and you are, you know, uh, Jane Roberts, um, when she was channeling Seth from the book, Seth Speaks, if anybody, any of you want to read those books, very interesting. Jane Roberts was in a very interesting channel and she channeled this, this entity named Seth and Seth sort of described the way things were on the other side. And some of the stuff that he said, a lot of the stuff he said is also I've had direct experience with. And so I find curious and interesting um, and one of the things he said was that you're probably manifest, um, your oversoul is present and manifest at at least eight different places at any given time. And those places could be in different dimensions, different realities, a whole nother planet. Um, and then one time I did meet myself, <laughs> my other, like, you know, this happened. I'm not kidding. I was like walking along and I met this woman and she was one of, we had, we had the, what? We had the same oversoul. I'm not kidding. Did I ever tell you that one time when I met myself and my oversoul? <laughs> so <laughs> true fact. Um, oh God, it's a longer story, but it's really interesting that I, um, and what was weird is we looked the same, we had the same name and we had instant full psychic information. As soon as she thought something, I heard it. As soon as I thought something and I met her and we spent the day together and we were both freaked out. Everybody around us was really excited because they kind of felt it happening and they made us like sit together and do psychic work together. And this is like before I was even like doing much psychic work, just a little, like I was a teenager. And then 
And we did. And then we both got really freaked out. And then we like sort of ran away from each other as fast as we could. It was almost like, was that supposed to happen? And uh, I don't know, it happened. And so we we did not remain in contact. It was we spent one day together, and we both went screaming from the room, and not because we didn't like each other, but because it was like, no, this is like I am in a science fiction movie or something. And then, interestingly enough, I ran into her like two or three years later, accidentally, weirdly again, and she had changed her physical look so dramatically. I had changed my physical look dramatically. I had changed my name to pomegranate and I had, and all of it had happened and we were no longer resonating as the same person. And, but yet we were both like, okay, so hi. And I don't know if this is her take on the situation. Certainly mine. Uh, okay. Hi. Okay. Hi. Okay. Good. So we're not going to talk anymore. Right. And we both went, no, let's not talk anymore. Let's go off and go do these separate life experiences and not cross the wires or cross the channels, you know? So, um, so yes, there's eight of you at least that are presently incarnated in terms of being access, accessing the timeline that you're currently in, in some dimension or other, according to Seth. So there's that you're the dead can be reborn. You can be your own ancestor. You can die, get reborn and have been your own grandmother. This ha that happens all the time. People tend to stay in groupings. They tend to like stay in karmic groupings. Um, they get together. They work things through. They go, let's, let's all work on this nugget of the transformation of the, I don't know. What is it all for? At this point, I get existential. I'll admit to you. I'm like, what is all this for? And it's because I can't perceive the nature of reality to the extent that I can when I'm dead. So when I'm trying to grasp the concepts, with my puny little human brain, it gets all nonverbal. And this is a show where you have to listen to me say words. So what I'll say is like, whoa, that's my expression of <laughs> trying to understand the multi-dimensionality of the universe and me as an individual coming and in, going from the planet as my own ancestor. But it happens. And uh, we're working through our karma. And our karma is about learning and growing and becoming depth and also bringing back the knowledge of the taste of fresh strawberry ice cream to the other side, which you don't have that there unless someone has it here and then can bring it back to the other side. So there's a way in which there's a lot that's not available there because there's not a same limitations. And so we come here and we, um, what if you just came here so you could taste strawberry ice cream and then die and bring it back to the other side and everybody would be like, yay, you're a rock star. You brought strawberry ice cream back. But ancestors are available to you whenever they're available to you and they come and go. I have ancestors who I'm like, they're right there with me. I talk to them every day. My dad's always in the house turning the sound off on the TV or flickering the lights, which he also does on my sister's TV, which is 3000 miles away and a different, uh, completely different <laughs> kind of TV. So whenever the TV goes and the sound doesn't work, we, we all go, oh, there's dad. So <clears throat> there's those ancestors. And then there's the ancestors who are with you for a while and then they go. Now they're not leaving you because they're not, um, because they become present, you know, reborn in the earth. They're leaving you because you don't need them or you can't understand them anymore or they're doing something that is not your business. And that is okay. Let them go. Uh, they're allowed to go do things that are not your business. So if we can let ourselves jump, leap like a fish out of the water for a minute and notice, oh, wow, there's a whole nother dimension here. I can't function here very well. But as you're falling back down, go, yeah, it's possible to perceive the world in a completely different way. And now we're back in the water where it's more comfortable. And then we can become aware that, in fact, water is a thing. Water exists. And that means then in this case, I mean, time, time is exists and there are places where it doesn't exist. And it's that grappling with that idea that is, it's almost like maybe one of the first steps in opening to mystery is grappling with the idea that time is unique and we don't, and we don't get to stay in it. And when we're here, it's a real blessing. So when you're bored out of your mind and you're waiting at the freaking light and it's taking forever, just remember that it too is a gift. The ability to wait for that light is a gift, 
because you get the gift of time. Also that strawberry ice cream, eat some strawberry ice cream. I'm going to eat a croissant. I'm going to bring croissants back to the other side. Next time you're in Portland, why don't you go visit the Fernie Bray, a magical gallery. Unfurl the magic. It's a place of jewelry and beautiful things all dedicated to the lands of fairy. In fact, they have an exclusive contract with Wendy and Brian Froud, as well as Toby Froud. You won't see their work in other galleries. Would you like to see exclusive original art by the artists who created the Dark Crystal, the Labyrinth, and Yoda? That's the place to find it, as well as beautiful work by many artisans. The Fernie Bray, 40th, and Hawthorne in Portland, Oregon, open Tuesdays through Sunday. Five two zero two 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 ninety nine twenty two ninety nine twenty two. Next question is, my grandmother is 95 and has advanced Alzheimer's disease that started about seven years ago. She lives in a facility and I am her main support person, the only one who visits her regularly. She's pretty checked out now, not mobile, only talks a little bit, but mostly not intelligible. I think sometimes recognizes my face, but I can't be sure. She was very, very clear before her decline that she didn't want to hang around for this Alzheimer's bullshit, but then she got too confused to take the action she had planned. This has allowed her to spend some time with my son, who's now three, and that's been very sweet, but she's gotten to the point where she can hardly interact with us at all. She's sleeping most of the time, losing weight, and started hospice care last week. She was always a very tough and proud practical person and I believe maybe hanging on a bit because she promised my mom she'd take care of me before my mom died of cancer when I was 14. I'm 39 now and doing just fine. How can I support her in letting go when she's ready? I've told her it's okay to go and can't tell how much she understands. I'm considering doing some kind of ritual with some of my friends to support her process. Thank you. One of the terrible tragedies of having lost the priestesses of having lost the power of the priestess to care for our community is we lost the priestess at the deathbed. And um, someone who with advanced stage Alzheimer's is dying. Now, unfortunately, they're not dying from Alzheimer's. They're dying from the, because Alzheimer's, it really takes forever, like a long time for Alzheimer's to kill you because it's slowly eating away at the brain and the brain is not that important in keeping the life functions going. So um, it can take 10, 15 years, a long time for someone to die from Alzheimer's. And frankly, it's not even Alzheimer's that kills people often. It's just being bedridden that kills people. Um, That's very hard on the body. So losing the priestess, we've lost the person who can open the gate for people when they need to cross over. And we also have this inability to accept, you guys know this, this inability to accept death. A culture has gone mad in that it's very attached to people living as long as they can, regardless of whether or not anybody involved in that living forever has any quality of life, including the caregivers. We have to be aware of caregivers' quality of life as much as we are about the person who's declining and dying's quality of life. Everybody, the community is affected by these things. And, and when we accept death as a beautiful gateway into something else, then we can allow the priest to open that gate and allow that person to and support that person in crossing over. And there's a lot of complications in crossing over when you don't have a spiritual um, ally to help you do it. Um, You can get lost. And actually, one of my workshops at the Northwest Magic Conference in April 2016 will be on this topic, which maybe we'll record and post this topic of what happens to people after they die. What are all the places they go and what kind of dead people can they be? Because there's not just one kind of dead people. So, yeah, you know, when your beloved one has a chronic deteriorating uh, disease and they have expressed a disinterest in sticking around for it, what they need is a priestess and (laughs) or a priest or, uh, you know, like 
I don't know. The Catholic priests don't, I don't know. They don't seem to do too much. I helped my mom cross over. I helped the number of my aunt who had Alzheimer's crossover. And there are things that you can do uh, that are ethical. Now you can become unethical spiritually. You got to make sure you know why you're doing it. You got to make sure because this person's quality of life is deteriorating. Your quality of life, you're a factor caregiver. Your quality of life is deteriorating. And this is, and this is actually just the body not having any way to let go. Because when the body dies, what happens is that story that the animal body holds, the bones, the blood, the minerals, the, that body, that animal body goes back to the earth. And then the story of that life goes to the earth. The ancestral story goes to the earth. So like I was talking about earlier, you cross out, you come, you come here, you taste strawberry ice cream, you bring that taste back to the spirit realms. Well, the, the, you know, to get born, the earth has to rise to meet you. The earth says, I will be a human vessel for you. I will create bones and sinew and I will create beating heart. I'll give you that beating heart, that thrill of the heartbeat that is the same thing that lets a butterfly wing beat it's the same energy it's the same um, impulse i will be a vessel for you if you will live in me and your job is to descend from the celestial realms and come into that body and then become something that is made of those two things spirit and earth you right now in the body you're in you are the third thing, which is something never seen before, nor never will be seen again. And that third thing, which is you has a life and that life when you die goes back to the earth and informs the earth of that experience. It's the experience. It's the emotionality. It's the, um, it's the hugs. It's the taste. It's the smells. It's the feelings. It's the triumphs. It's the sorrows all of those things, that entire rich tapestry of your life goes into the earth. We call that, those spirits after death, we call that those who remain. If you become one of those who remain and those bones go into the earth and the blood goes into the air and and becomes water and the uh, minerals go back and all of those things spread, and all of the dead who have ever risen and died, all of their stories are in all things, and you have access to everything that's ever happened through the earth itself. And you carry it in your body, and you will release this life into the earth. It's nice, it's great if you can cultivate a life of joy, and um, cultivate a life of harmony and love, because that's what you put into the earth. But it's all valuable. Nothing's not valuable and hard things are fine. There's no judgment there. It's about what you cultivate. So now I'm lost. What was the question? (laughs) So that all goes back into the earth and that body needs permission to go because if you don't give it permission, it will freak out and go, I'm not accomplishing my mission. So the body needs permission to go and the spirit needs permission to go. And the spirit needs a gate to open for it. The body, a little bit of gate, not so much. It's, it kind of knows where to go down onto the earth. <laughs> you know, If you burn it up, it'll go out that way. If you bury it, it'll go that way. It knows what to do once it's dead, but it, it needs permission. It needs to be allowed. And the spirit needs a gate to be called and formatted. And spirit needs uh, the ancestors to come and help it get across because there's lots of ways to get lost. And um, all of that needs to happen. But before any of that happens, you've got to instruct the body and the spirit to go, okay, the third thing we're done. So in a way, what I'm describing is that like every single religion and concept is really available, is really true. Like what I'm trying to say is like those, <laughs> those people who are like, I believe in heaven. It's like, yeah, heaven's cool. You're going to go to heaven. I believe nothing after death. It's like, yeah, that's right. You're not going to ha- remember anything after death. The third being, which is you, is going to go and will not exist anymore. And um, the the body will let go and go into the earth. And that's, you know, you can pick any religion and ascribe it to all three of those things. So, but that separation needs to happen. You need to be able to help the person who's trying to die 
to separate the spirit from the body. And that's a technique. And it's not that complicated, y'all, but you but you know, it's kind of a thing you need to train in. But I will say this to you, um, read Stephen Levine's book, Why We Die. And read the book, How We Die. These two books will be very helpful. Because they talk about death and no uncertain terms. Stephen Levine's book is from a spiritual standpoint, and he is a person who trained with Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Did I ever tell you the story about Elizabeth Kubler Ross on this podcast? I can't remember. All right, I'll tell you that story in a minute. And he studied with her, and he knows a lot about death, and he just died. Oh, Stephen, you had a good passing, I hope. Bless you. Um, so, but what we're going to do when we're helping someone die is we're saying, bless you body. You can return to the earth. Bless you spirit. You were calling the ancestors for, and you can return to the heavens, the spiritual realm and bless you. The one who came together as was those things you are no longer going to exist except for in our memories. And we bless you and we release you. And we release and we allow that these two things can now separate. And so, you know, if you know how to cast and call a circle, do that. Make sure the room is cleaned out, that you've purified it, you've smudged it. Um, Make sure that you have pictures of the beloved dead, the people who um, were associated with this woman who have gone on and called, say their names and tell stories about them. She is hearing everything you're saying on some level. Um, start saying to her goodbye. And then one thing you can do is just pray over her chakras, do a healing. This is very simple and very fine to do ethically. You just do a healing on her chakras. If you don't know what chakras is, go find out. Um, she has a rainbow in her body and the rainbow has to leave because the spirit is a rainbow and the, it has to leave the animal body. So we just say a little prayer starting with her feet and we just massage her feet and we say these feet have walked far enough and we let those, uh, we ask the spirit to separate from the feet and then we just put our hands on her, um, I guess, I mean, there could be iffiness around this. You just put your hands over her yoni, (laughs) you know, and you just like this, this, this womb gave birth to the children that now live. And then you do it over her womb and then you do it over her belly. And then you do it over her heart, her throat, her third eye, her crown chakra. And then up in the celestial realms, you say, this is the gateway to which you go. There's a being of white light to which you go. And you just incur- and do her hands to do her two hands. And you're just encouraging the spirit. You're saying now is the time to go. The gate is being opened. The ancestors are coming for you. And then you say to the body, you go back to the earth. Now you bring the stories of this life to the earth. And you just tell it, you know, like a lot of priests is just like explaining things to people, you know, this is like, I spent all my time explaining things to people, explain it to the body, explain it to the spirit and explain it to the third being you've had your life. It was a beautiful life. And now it's over the story. The chapter must close. The book must end. You are done. Your story has been told. Your story has been told things like that, whatever feels right to you. And that's a really powerful thing. And one thing I used to my auntie Grace who died, who was like hanging on with the Alzheimer's man. She had it for years. She had that curled up fetal position. And I was just like, man, I got to go down there. I got to help my aunt Grace out. And I said to my mom, I got to go get some fans because that's the work. And I did all this. And my mom who was like, well, all right, well, fine. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Well, I don't know what you're doing. Right. So all right, we'll go down to the old, you know, this won't work, blah, blah, blah. So I go down to Chinatown with my mom and we get some fans and I go, okay, mom, I'm going to do this ritual on any grace because <laughs> my mom's like, okay, crazy witch daughter. And so I do the, all the things I'm talking about. And then I just started waving the fans and that's like moving the energy through. Like I'm waving the fans over her body and moving the energy through. And, uh, you know, my sisters think I'm a little wackadoodle. My mom thinks I'm a little wackadoodle. This is a long time ago. I was in my early twenties then. And I'm like, okay, okay. I did my magic. Yay. 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 There you go. Any grace. And you go when you need to. Cause I was just like sick of sick of it. She was fetal position, non-communicative for over a year. And so she, uh, what happens is that night we get the phone call from (laughs) the old age home. Um, she's dying 
And so they all, everybody in my family looked at me and they're like, oh, and I said, yeah, be careful. <laughs> well, it's just the way we talk. We're funny that way. So we get in the car, we go down there and she did die within two days of doing that magic for her. She was ready. She just needed the help. She needed the priestess. And I was young and like, I guess I'll go down. I don't know what I'm doing. And it worked and she died. And yeah, now she's an ancestor, very helpful one to me. Although she was a little Alzheimer-y for many years. Like she didn't quite get that she was dead and had, she was safe, but she was a little like, you know, Alzheimer-y for a couple of years after. Um, so that's what you do. People who are listening, um, you know, it's unethical to do it to someone who is happily alive <laughs> and it won't work. It will not work. If that worked every, you know, it won't work. You can't kill someone doing this. It's not ethical to do it. Remember everything you do is comes back to you three times. So why didn't I die when I killed my Annie Grace <laughs> that way? Because I wasn't killing her. What I was doing was healing her. So what I got back was three times, um, the healing that I gave her. So we have to do it because it's right for them because it's their time. And because they've asked for it, they've said, I don't want any more of this Alzheimer's bullshit. Right. So, um, but we don't, I don't, I would never do this for someone who was suffering from depression or was phys otherwise physically well, because depression is a different issue. And there's lots we can do about that. We do our best and it's not about getting people to not have their karma. We want people to stay as long as they can. Once you've manifest, you got to try to stay as long as you can, as long as it's not as your quality of life is so deteriorated, you can't handle it. Oh, does that make sense? So because, you know, as a person who's gone through serious illness and stuff, that was my karma. It was really helpful and interesting. And when we're on the other side, we're like, oh, yes, I'll go and I'll lose an arm. That'll be interesting. And then we're here. We're like, I lost an arm. This is a horror show, <laughs> right? What we think are horror shows on the other side, we think are curiosities that are worth experiencing. Okay. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, this is paraphrasing her story. So she's in the death and dying business. And she's trying to say, Hey, you know, there's a way that people go through stages of death and pain that people go through that have distinct parts and they're not linear, but there's all these different things. They get mad, they get sad. They don't, finally they accept. They also, you know, bargain, they do all these things. And we need to pay attention to how people die. The lost art of helping people die. I mean, she was a priestess, right? And she's sick to death and, you know, she, I mean, she's a woman and oh God, you know, can you imagine what she went through? So, um, she's going to quit. She decides she's going to quit and she makes the decision. I'm going to sign, send in my resignation. And she goes to, uh, get on the elevator and the doors open and there's her mentor. And he's like, are you thinking about quitting? And she says, yes. He says, come back and let's go to your office and we'll have a conversation about it. They sit down and he tells her all the reasons why she shouldn't quit. And he convinces her not to quit. And she says, okay, all right, you've convinced me. I'm not going to quit. He goes, your work is good. It's going to be important in the future. It's going to change the world and how people de deal with death. You need to stay. And she agrees to do it. And she says to him, will you do me one favor? And he says, yes. She said, just write your name on this piece of paper for me. And she hands him a piece of paper and a pen. And he takes a piece of paper and he, a pen. And he writes the name. And she takes the piece of paper back. And she puts it in her pocket. They part. She decides not to quit. She gets home. She takes the piece of paper out of her pocket. Yep, sure enough, there's his name on it in his handwriting. And, of course, the punchline of the story is the guy was dead. She had this conversation with a dead man <laughs> and he wrote his name on a piece of paper. Yes. So sometimes the ancestors, when it's really important, will do stuff like that. But it's important to look for the subtle things too. When you when your grandmother goes, if she's not already gone, if she goes, look for her, the way she talks to you. My dad, it's about flickering lights and turning the sound off. Well, you shut up for a minute. <laughs> Sound off on the TV and then we all go, there goes dad. Dad was flickering the lights like crazy when my mama died. Oh my God. The lights were like all over the house. Yeah. When, when people die, open the window and cover the mirrors. It's always a good tradition. I hope she has a good crossing. Next time you're in Portland, why don't you go visit the Fernie Bray, a magical gallery unfurl the magic 
It's a place of jewelry and beautiful things, all dedicated to the lands of fairy. In fact, they have an exclusive contract with Wendy and Brian Froud, as well as Toby Froud. You won't see their work in other galleries. Would you like to see exclusive original art by the artists who created the Dark Crystal, the Labyrinth, and Yoda? That's the place to find it, as well as beautiful work by many artisans. The Fernie Bray, 40th, and Hawthorne in Portland, Oregon, open Tuesdays through Sunday. Five two zero two 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 ninety nine twenty two ninety nine twenty two. And the last question on this podcast has to do with the different phases of the first year of a romantic relationship. She wants to know, Pom, what should you be asking yourself for the first three months, the second three months, the third and the fourth, and then after certain anniversaries after that? Also, key milestones such as when you introduce a person to your friends, have them come to your house, meet your family, have sex, etc., etc. So what are the different phases of the first year of a romantic relationship? Well, that's a big question. I mean, I could really talk about that for a couple of hours and to be able to describe all of your questions about that. But I'll give you a, you know, a shorter answer that'll hopefully tide you over. Perhaps I will do a little download about that at some point. Um, So when you're approaching uh, relationships that are romantic, what we're talking about is we're talking about inviting into our our sphere of influence the closest person that will be in your life. So the most most important person is you, yourself, and your higher power. And then the second layer out from there is your life mate, the person you want to go through life with. And this person will have a profound impact on your life. This person is going to influence you more than anybody else. Like, I mean, they kind of make your parents look like nothing. And you know how important your parents were. They basically made you who you were. Well, your parents become almost nothing uh, compared to how a person you fall in love with and live with will be. So I'm going to answer the question as if what we're going, because it really depends. What's my intention in dating? Like, what's your intention? That's the first thing you need to do is to answer that question. Why am I dating? What do I want to get out of it? And um, if you want to get out of it, lots of fun and sex and play and joy, that's great. Go for it. That's not the question I'm answering. (laughs) The question I'm answering is, how do I cultivate a relationship with someone that that person then becomes my life mate? They become central to my life. And they're so central. And I have life mates. Like I have life mates. Uh, I'm a married lady. I am married for almost 30 years in September uh, of 2016. And so that's one person that's in my life in the life mate category. I have two other people in there, maybe even three possibly who I'm going through life with. I'm not having sex with those people. So the one I'm having sex with is even more profound because I've opened up that part of who I am to them. So my, my partner, my husband and I are life mates and we're having life mates for having sex in a monogamous relationship. So I'm answering the question of how do I cultivate a relationship with someone who comes so close into my inner sphere that I've opened up all parts of myself. The only thing that's not open to them is my direct relationship with my higher power. That's what I'm going to try to answer. How do I cultivate that relationship? Because that is a particularly important relationship. When you've decided to have that, that's a real specific thing. Now, anything, there's all kinds of other options too, but that one, that one's going to really impact you. It's going to change you at the root. It's going to change you at your core. It's going to change what you fruit out, what you give out to the world is that person because you are not going to, I could never be who I am without having had that. My husband as my life mate. So what you want to do is know what you're going for. Are you going for that? Is that what you're going for? Cause if that's what you're going for, take it seriously. Don't, don't be flippant. Don't rush, rush. For some reason, our culture is like, I don't know what the heck, like these fairy stories about the Cinderella's and this Disney movies and the snow whites. So oh my God, help me. 
Ugh, Snow White. Like, really, honestly, the Snow White of Disney, like, let her just go rot in the woods. Who cares? Like, she's rude and self-centered, and all she cares about is getting a boyfriend. Like, this is the most vapid person. And it's, of course, not who Snow White is magically. It's not who she is in the original story before even the Grimm's got a hold of it. You know, she's a much more profound personality, right? But we've got this cultivation of that my life sort of begins and ends with a boyfriend, right? And so what I want you to do is take it seriously. I want you to not be in a fantasy about it. I don't want you to be like, oh, it should just happen naturally, suddenly, like all these romantic comedies, like I get someone and then we have all this really dumbass drama for, you know, an hour and a half in those stupid romantic comedies. Like, no, can we please unbrainwash ourselves from that misogynistic idea of how cultivating the most important relationship in your life works. I mean, if you're going to get a career, are you going to go, I just hope it floats by and sees me and says, I want you like, that's not how life works. Life works. You have a calling, you study, you commit, you give, you take it seriously. And you also take it slowly. You don't expect to go from single to having the most profound, important relationship in your life, fully present and in your house within six weeks like we do not expect this of our careers why are you expecting it of your relationships like you can tell i've done a lot of coaching on this topic right (laughs) i've encountered and believe me all of that is misogyny all of that approach to relationship is because you don't value yourself enough to take the time to get to know yourself and to know what you want and then also get to know the other person. It has to be some kind of romantic romp. Romance is so almost completely irrelevant when it comes to this person that you want to cultivate a relationship with. It's nice. It's, you know, it's certainly, you know, nice to have, uh, you know, dessert with your dinner, but that's all it is. You can't live on it and it won't sustain a relationship and it won't just like dessert won't sustain your body romance will not sustain a relationship. And you know, even love is not that important, by the way. Oh my God, did I just say that out loud? Listen, let me tell you what love is in a relationship. Love is a prerequisite. Okay. You have to have it, but it, it's not going to get your ass through it. It's like the day when you look at your partner and you think I could actually murder you right now, that love is not going to get you through that. What's going to get you through it is knowing that you made a good choice and that this rough patch is trying to help you grow. And if you can let it, let yourself grow through it, you will be able to sustain the relationship. So love is just a prerequisite. So stage wise stages, the stages of how do you cultivate this relationship is you start a with knowing who you are, who are you? What do you want? What are you going for? What kind of relationship do you want? And like, what don't you want? Which is not the same as let's make a list of, you know, all what I want the eyes color to be and what I want this person's career to be or how much money they make a year. That's not it. I'm talking about profound principles. What is core to who you are? And one of the ways you can know what's core to who you are is look at your friends who you admire and love. What are their qualities? Because you like them because of their qualities. So that's a good way to start cultivating the idea of what you want in a partner. And one of the big pitfalls I see is people meet a partner and then they start, they start letting go of what's really profound to them. So, oh, well, he's not available, but I'm sure he'll become available. And one of the main pitfalls we do is we go, well, he's not this or she's not this, but I'm sure we can, she can learn to be that. It's like, look, when you meet someone, take them seriously and take them in because what you're seeing is what you're going to get. And you have zero, 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 zero power on changing them. They will not change. You cannot change them. They are who they are. Do not try to change them. Not even one little bit. Don't try to change the way they dress, what they say, uh, what they eat, none of that stuff. Who they are is who they are. Leave them alone. Take them or leave them for who they are. Because that's another pitfall. So now I'm just telling you all the pitfalls. I'm not telling you the, the system. But really, these pitfalls are so bad. And they're so right in the first month, right? So what's going to happen is you're going to meet someone and you're going to like them. And how do you get to know them? How do you get to know a person? Well, I highly recommend going online. I think the online way of life is very good. I think if you pay for the service, 
more the better because there is a portion of the people on the paid services that are actually very much interested in finding a partner. That's why they're paying money for it. Now there's a bunch of gamers too. use your intuition. When you're using the services, like whatever it might be, what you want to do is phone them, get an email back and forth. I like you. I'm enjoying the email conversation. I'm not feeling put down. I'm feeling like you've got some manners. Great. Now we're going to have a phone call. You want to have the first phone call be about 10 minutes. Now everybody said, why I can't give out my phone number. I'm like, why can't we give out our phone number? Our phone numbers used to always be in books. They sit, our phone number and our addresses sit on in everybody's home. You would know my number, my name, and my address. Now they only have your phone number. Don't worry about it so much. You, it's way easier to go on a whole lot of phone call dates than it is to get your ass up, get dressed, get pretty, and get your butt down to the coffee shop, okay? You will drain yourself dry if you're dating through coffee shop things phone call. You will know a lot about someone by first phone call. You want to have one phone call, 10 minutes. Then you're going to have a second phone call. Aim for about 20 minutes. If you're still interested in the person after you've had two phone calls and they're intellectually stimulating to you and you're finding them interesting, now you go and find out about the chemistry. Why do you do it this way? Because you want to be aware of the chemistry factory. So you meet someone and you've got chemistry with them. That means nothing. It just, again, is a prerequisite. But your brain will trick you because your brain wants you to reproduce children and your animal body wants you to reproduce children. So it will trick you to go, this is the one. It's love at first sight. We're together. This is everything in the world. And it's like, that's just the chemical factory starting up. If your chemical factory gets fired up in the first month or so and you go for it and you pump that sucker up like by having sex with them or going on a lot of dates or becoming obsessively like meeting them all the time or thinking about them all the time or writing them texts all the time. You're really just pumping up your chemistry factory and your chemical factory, which is about sex and getting pregnant, does not give a shit if you are married to this person in 30 years. What it gives a shit about is that you get pregnant and have a baby and it will last you for a year to three years. And at the end of three years, the chemistry stops and that's when people break up because your body is programmed to get pregnant and get the child to a year and a half. And at that point, it gives up the ghost because it doesn't care anymore about your relationship. Okay. So if you want to cultivate a long-term relationship, you're going to go slow. And you want to find out if you're intellectually stimulated before you find out if you have chemistry. You might be intellectually stimulated and then you meet them and there's no chemistry, at which case you go, no, done, out. Have a polite 15-minute coffee say, well, this has been lovely. I don't think there's chemistry between us. Goodbye. Off you go. Right? So you're not going to spend any time with anybody you're not intellectually interested in, emotionally connecting to, and you have some chemistry. These are all prerequisites. Okay. So when we're doing the online thing, we're doing phone calls and we're doing short coffee. If we can get ourselves to the coffee thing, we're there. Before we get to any of those things, I want you to be as picky as you can possibly be. I don't want you having any phone calls with somebody unless you're totally, totally into them. And you're really, really liking what you're seeing in the online and then through the emails and then the phone calls. If you're not like totally fascinated with the person, don't bother putting the lipstick on and going into the, I know I'm talking to women more, but I think it's mostly because this is who I'm mostly training. You're not going to put the lipstick on and go into the coffee shop. Okay. Don't bother. There's no point. Be fascinated or don't go be fascinated all along. And that's your curriculum. If you, if you are continuously fascinated by this person, every time you meet them, that's what you want. Because I am still fascinated with my husband. He still fascinates me 30 years later. If they're not fascinating you in the first six months, they're not going to fascinate you for 30 years. If they're fascinating you in the first six months, you're going to be fascinated for the rest of your life by this person. And let's face it, that's what relationships are really based on. They're based on what a fascinating exotic creature this is. Of course, then we would go, I will change them into who I want them to be. <laughs> I've made that mistake. It doesn't work. People don't change. People are who they are. Um, okay. It's a really weird dichotomy that relationships are basically take me as I am and I need to learn to be influenced by you. Um, although I can't change you, 
you, you have the option of being influenced by me. And in fact, that's what the whole thing's about is you're opting to be influenced by me. Isn't that a weird combination? It's true though. All right. So basically if that's what you're doing, the online thing, if you're meeting people in person, it's sort of the same thing. Lots of short little conversations, get on the phone, have talks. If you're going out to dinner, you know, fascination. The second you're not fascinated with that person in the first six months, it's done. And what you want to do is you want to take it from the perspective of the wheel of the year. Because one of the things that I see happen a lot is people meet someone and then they start planning their wedding. <laughs> and they're either planning their wedding and going, oh my God, I think I have to marry this person because I like them, sort of. And they rush it too fast, like they're planning their wedding, or they're like, I don't know if I want to marry this person. It's like, how could you know you've been on two dates? Like, slow down, right? They think they have to decide really early. So what I want you to do is I want you to think about going through the wheel of the year. Consider, you know, you'll meet someone at near a quarter. So you'll meet them at an equinox or a solstice, or you'll meet them at Imbolc or Beltane or somewhere like that, right? The start of the relationship is let's say equinox, spring equinox. Great. So you date them and every date you go on for the first um, quarter, which is three months is you say, I don't know, do I want to go on another date? Am I fascinated? And you make no commitments. I suggest you do not get the chemistry, chemical factory going, which means I suggest you do not have sex with this person for three months. It, you want someone in your life for 30 years? I think you can wait thir three months. Plus, you're making the foundations of the relationship. You you will go back to the first year of your relationship forever. Everything that you do, every choice you make will be the foundation. So what when you're laying the foundation, you want it to be good, juicy, lovely, energy building. You know, let's you know, let's slowly build the sexual energy and the sexual tension between us. Um, so that we can, we can have memories of the first kiss. We can have memories of that one date where we did that one thing. I mean, Kevin and I still like talk about our first date, first five dates all the time. Um, so you want to build it slowly. Okay. So the first three months, you're just like every date. I don't know. Am I going to go on another date? Am I still fascinated? Have they said something I don't like? Am I finding out about their care? You want in the first three months, your goal is to find out about their character, their value system. Do they have the same dreams and goals you have? Do they have the same perspective that you have that you can actually, you know, you go back to that first thing of what do I really value in re close relationships? Does this person match it? The second they stop matching it, out they go. Like, do not spend time with people who are not right. And if they're not right, they're never going to be right. It's not like, oh, I'll get to know them better and they'll be more right. No, look at in the first six months, everybody can put on a good show. So you're not really seeing the person and mostly what you're seeing is projection. So when you start seeing red flags, believe the red flags. Okay. Believe your red flags. You cannot change them. That red flag is not going away. If you're in the chemical factory, you will start to ignore the red flags. Don't do it. So most people can only hold it together for six months, putting on the best show, putting on their most glorious self. Sociopaths, can do it for a year, year and a half. If you are dating someone and it's too good to be true, it's just all so beautiful and amazing. And you're just, you can't believe how you're being showered with love and joy and beauty. That's a red flag. That person is probably seducing you. Why do they need to seduce you? Because they're trying to trick you into something that you don't want to be in. They're gaslighting you. Be careful. All right. Be careful empaths especially because empaths rely on their empathy to understand the person that's in front of them and the empathy uh when you're an empath and you're connecting with a sociopath you can't they don't feel stuff so you can't feel it so they'll trick you be aware of that so if it's too good to be true it's too good to be true it's a giant red flag slow down so the first three months you're dating uh you know then you want to introduce them to your friends like in that nearing the end of the first three months and then you're going to go to your friends. What do you think? What's your hit? Be honest with me. And if your friends don't like this person, out they go. Because they're seeing it from a standpoint of protection and love for you. And they will see things that you can't see because they're not in the chemical factory, right? They're not high on the dope inside of their body. <laughs> so if they're like, mm, I don't know, listen to them. Because before you have sex with them, you want to have 
good information. All right, so say they pass the friend test and say that you it's good. It's been three months. Sure, like go have some sex. Start having some really hot sex if you want to, or you can wait six months. I would personally at this age wait six months. I ain't getting in bed with nobody at three months. Forget about it. I don't know nothing about you at three months. I'm waiting six months. Plus things are getting quite hot because I'm not saying I'm not kissing them and other, you know, other things, but there's no orgasms, right? That's what I mean by sex. Nobody's having an orgasm. In case people get confused what I mean by that. <laughs> no genitalia is being fondled <laughs> and nobody's having orgasms. Okay, so the first trimester, then you can have sex if you want to. And then you don't, you know, you don't need to introduce them to your family until about six months. At six months, if they're not a sociopath, you're going to start to see the cracks. You're going to start to see stuff you don't like. You're going to have answered the questions. Is their moral and ethical world similar enough to mine that I can tolerate them? Do they have the character traits that I admire in a person? Do I find them fascinating? Are they using drugs or alcohol? Drugs and alcohol, red flag. Have they ever done any personal work on, the, on recovering from whatever trauma they experienced in their family life? Are they interested in their, are there things that are invigorating and interesting to them that makes them an interesting person? These are the things that you'll have answered at six months. At six months, that's when you're like, you're going to start to see the cracks. And then when you, can I accept these negative character traits? Guess what? You have them too. Can I live with someone like this? Because at six months, you're <clears throat> going to really evaluate whether this is a person you can live with. By the way, the first three months, you're still dating other people. Okay. Six months, you're going to take them to your family. That's fine. Get to know your family or not, if you're not interested in your family. And so then you're, just, then you're going to be starting to make decisions every three months. So, you know, at six months you go, yeah, I think I can keep dating this person unless something really drastic happens. I'll keep dating them. Then you don't worry about whether you're going to keep dating them. You don't ask that question again, unless something happens that makes you go, yuck. You, then you only ask that at three months. So every three months you're going to ask yourself for the first year, first last three quarters, you're going to say, do I want to keep dating this person? Do I want to keep dating this person? So you're not constantly evaluating, constantly questioning it. You're just like checking them out. Like you got, it takes a year to know someone. You have to see them go through the seasons, see how they treat you, see how they treat themselves, see how they treat others around them. If they have children, how they treat their children. This is all information. And then at the end of that, you'll be there for a year. If you that's when you have to be really, really, really clear with yourself because by then you're either with a sociopath who's seducing you, which we've already taken care of, or you know, you know, the things that are irritating and bothering you. Basically, you have to say to yourself, the things that irritate me and bother me about this person are this. Can I live with this for the rest of my life? Is it so irritating to me that I don't feel like I could live with it for the rest of my life. If you're coming up with plans on how to fix what the person's doing that's making you crazy, that relationship is not going to work. I also recommend that at, if you're serious at nine months, you go into couple counseling. Why not? Why not get a professional involved? Why not learn some basic ground rules for communicating? Because that's how we, uh, that's how we fail at relationships is our, our, communication styles are not good. And so we have to learn some ground rules for relating to others and a therapist can help you get there. And mostly what a therapist should be able to do is to help you become more vulnerable inside the relationship. So you can be more open about what's going on with you. So at nine months, I would be going to a couple's therapist no matter what. And then in a year, I would be really honest with myself and be like, can I live with this thing? Like they never call me or they never do this or they're always doing that. Can I live with it for the rest of my life? Because I'm going to tell you right now, that's what you're going to be living with for the rest of your life. And so then in a year you can go, yeah, that was a great experience, but I don't want to live with this for the rest of my life. And then you, you move on to the next relationship. But if you're like, I can accept, I drives me crazy, but I love them and they're fascinating and there's so much about them and I, I can accept it. What do I have to change in me to accept these traits in this person? Do I like the person I will become? if I change myself to accept this annoying thing about this person, um, do I like myself better or do I like myself less? That's the question you have to ask. And if you're like, I would like myself better 
and I can accept this, then you're good to go. Now you can make a long-term commitment to the person, but you can't actually make a long-term commitment to someone unless you've known them a year and seen them go through all of the cycles of, of the year. Because people have different times of the year when they're better, when they're worse, when they're triggered, when they're optimistic, when they're pessimistic. And so you have to give your relationship the breath of the year before you can actually evaluate it. Deep, profound relationships need the element of time in order to really grow. So go and throw out all of your Cinderella books and your rom-coms and take it seriously and really be picky and really know that you are either going to become improved by the influence of this person or you're going to become lessened and you want to become improved, right? All right. That's as quick. I mean, really it takes many hours to describe this, but that's as good as I can do in the time we have. Good luck with your relationship. Facebook show. Everybody go to Facebook, ask pomegranate podcast and leave your questions there. The lovely Kayleen Beaujolais will write them and then she will read them and we will talk about it on the air. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And remember time flows on a spiral. You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. She's a...